Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is March 14th, 2022. I am Braden Dennis, as always, joined by Simon Belanger. So we got a fun slate of news to talk about today. The market's always given us something to talk about. And of course, some companies on that weird reporting schedule. We love you because you give us something to talk about all year long. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a fun one to talk. Lots of news, some earnings as well. Some earnings that were a bit behind because of all the news that's happened on the right. uh, the global front, but I think it'll be a fun episode. And last, I'm going to talk about sports betting in Canada. So stick around at the end. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Last week, we had, of course, the all-important stock split, which for some reason, many people still think matters. However, Amazon finally did this 20-for-1 stock split. Yeah, Amazon did announce that uh, last week. And like you just mentioned, it doesn't change anything about the business long term. I think for the most part, the market tends to react favorably to these announcements short term. But Amazon did announce that they were doing a 20 for one stock split last week. When the move was announced, like I mentioned, the market reacted positively. However, it doesn't change anything with the fundamentals of the business. So the move will make the cost of buying shares of Amazon more affordable for retail investors specifically if they don't have access to fractional shares with their brokers. In the US, it's more prevalent. In Canada, there are some that do offer it, but most brokers don't don't allow for that. And another reason I've heard that it will provide some flexibility to Amazon when it comes to stock-based compensation for its employees. And that makes sense when you think about it, because having a single share worth $3,000 provides a lot less flexibility than having a share worth around $150 a piece. So for that stock-based compensation to reward employees, that may not be making the highest salaries. Having more flexibility here definitely makes sense for Amazon. They also announced that they were authorizing up to $10 billion worth of share buybacks. Now, let's keep that in mind. $10 billion worth for a company as massive as Amazon. That's really peanuts. It's much less than 1% of outstanding shares. But I think the main takeaway here is that Amazon is looking at returning capital to shareholders and they haven't bought back shares in quite some times and I did mention in a recent episode typically there's two ways that companies will be able to do that either through buybacks or dividends and clearly here Amazon is choosing the buyback route the buyback for Amazon is a buyback for ants for one thing Google also announced this uh 20 for 1 stock split so the two of them both had their, you know, 3,000 and change USD stock doing a 20 for one stock split. Now, what I always find funny is Google posted, or I was looking on it, and Google's top five trending searches of the day when the stock split was announced was, what does Amazon's 20 for one stock split mean? Spoiler <laughs> alert, 
absolutely nothing. However, clearly, it's one of those things where like, if historically it makes retail investors bid up the stock and it goes up, then is that just how it works in perpetuity? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just one of those, one of those weird forces in the market. And if it seems to do something, then I don't know. But I, I guess there is lower friction for retail investors to buy the shares. So, I mean, all the power to them. Yeah, I think there's an argument to say that there's some utility to that move, just for the reasons I've mentioned. But like you said, in terms of the actual business, it makes absolutely no different. Uh, the market may have reacted positively short term, but long term, it won't make much of a difference. I remember when I first opened my brokerage account, a buddy of mine, I, I knew nothing. This was years and years ago. I knew absolutely nothing. And so this is a reminder to everyone out there. Everyone starts knowing nothing. So keep it up. Just keep grinding. His stock pitch, I forget what stock it was. I really forget. It might have been Netflix, which would have been a good, a hell of a good buy back then. The stock pitch started with the shares are going to split soon. And I was like, oh, what does that mean? <laughs> And uh, a lot of people want to know what it means. And spoiler alert, it means absolutely nothing. WSP Global reported their fourth quarter full year revenue of $10.2 billion, Simon, an increase of 17%, nice 3.3% organic growth for the quarter was closer to 9%. Really good for this mostly grow by acquisition consolidator of engineering firms. Earnings per share is $4 a share, up 62%. Free cash flow for the quarter was $370 million for the quarter of free cash flow, which was up 40% compared to fourth quarter last year. They deployed $1.2 billion in acquisitions, really nice to see, and their backlogs at $10 billion, which was up 10% organically year over year. Man, this is a sweet spot of TSX companies. It's only listed in Canada. It's not a huge market cap. Let me let me check what's the market cap of WSP today. It is 19 that's more than I thought. 19 billion only listed on the TSX. So it's like a mid cap, large cap type of vibe. Super underfollowed. Don't hear much about it. Global company doing now over 10 billion dollars in revenue, growing high double digits. What's not to like? Super undervalued historically. I think the valuation has expanded quite nicely for shareholders recently, but still trading at a reasonable valuation, a reasonable multiple, and still getting growth. I like it here still. Yeah. Yeah. There's not too much to add there. I think I know this company pretty much through you. So I'll, I'll take your word for it. Man, it's one of those TSX roll ups of fragmented businesses and engineering firms are fragmented and i think there's still a lot to like here it's now become one of the largest firms in the world yeah it's like it's uh overtaken it must have overtaken snc lavalin yeah for sure oh yeah in terms of market yeah. cap yeah there was whispers when wsp was around 11 12 billion on the tsx in market cap and aecom the big uh california-based engineering firm was about nine billion USD uh, on the New York Stock Exchange. 
So pretty much a merger of equals was supposed to happen. That was like the word on the street, which would have made like this gigantic global engineering firm. And that never happened to my surprise. I thought the merger was going to happen. So maybe it happens down the road, but I think WSP is growing faster than them. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Now moving on, Alberta is now projecting a budget surplus of 2022. The reason why I wanted to talk about that, because it's only the second time since 2008, the province said that it is projecting a $500 million surplus in 2022. It's also projecting a surplus of $900 million and $700 million for the next two years. And I thought it was interesting to mention this because clearly this shows that things are going well for the Canadian oil patch if prices continue being this high and if the oil patch goes is doing well then obviously the Albertan government is collecting more taxes on their revenues which is clearly what is happening so I think it's a bit benefiting the west and I think with the embargo that we've seen from the western nations now on oil coming from Russia, I think there's most likely going to be a lot more demand for oil or the uh, yeah oil in the uh, Western, in Western Canada. Alberta has been waiting for their time to shine. It's been, you know, a depressed local economy as the, the price of oil has not been favorable for the better part of over a decade now. And oh boy, they're having their time to shine right now. I think that these companies are smarter now though and are going to be well a little bit well more well capitalized in the future is what I'll say they're not going to get too high on the high price of oil i think that they're going to be have better balance sheets in the future and that is overall a good thing for the alberta economy hey you know what if you're in calgary right now things are looking good again so uh, congratulations yeah and the ones that did not do capital allocation well in the last oil boom that happened, I think it was 2008, 2009, right, that it kind of stopped. I mean, the ones that didn't do capital allocation well, for the most part, are not there anymore. The yeah. good companies that are still there, that were there at the time, are still thriving. Yes, of course, their share price might not be reflective of that because it will be very dependent on the price of oil. But the good companies are still there. So you still, I'm thinking, obviously, Suncor mentioned it a lot, Canadian Natural Resources as well. Those are two of the ones that I think are, are solid plays for those looking to enter that sector. Now, moving on to the news last week that U.S. President Joe Biden signed an executive order on cryptocurrencies. So overall, this was well seen by the crypto industry. The order focuses on consumer protection, financial stability, illicit uses or money laundering, leadership in the global financial sector, financial inclusion and responsible innovation. One of the goals of the order is to get various federal agencies to actually work together, which has not been the case. So for those of you who've been following the crypto landscape, especially in the U.S., may have noticed that there tends to be these different agencies that were working in silos. And now this order is essentially asking them to work together. So it sounds also like the U.S. government is realizing cryptocurrencies are here to stay and wants to achieve a balance between reducing the potential use 
of cryptocurrencies for illicit means, ensuring that it does not pose a systematic risk to the financial system while encouraging innovation of this new technology in the U.S., so it's also putting a lot of emphasis on investor protection, which is not surprising because a lot of Democrats have been really pushing that rhetoric when it comes to cryptocurrencies, saying that investors and consumers could be severely or negatively impacted, especially when it comes to the volatility. So I'm sure that this is because cryptocurrencies are extremely volatile, like I just mentioned, but also because... There has been tons of ICO scams out there, especially in the past two, three years. And the last thing that made headlines here for this executive order is that the U.S. agencies will be asked to evaluate how the U.S. could issue a central bank digital currency or CBDC. This is one of the most fascinating things to keep an eye on, especially since there are already private stable coins like USDC and USDT that are currently being used. As a Canadian, I think it's fair to start asking our governments where they stand on the issue and more clarity going forward. Whether you own cryptocurrencies or not, at this point, I think it's fair to say that it's not going away. Having a government that embraces this space would go a long way with promoting innovation to space in Canada. I know there's some guidance from the CRA when it comes to tax for tax purposes specifically on cryptocurrencies, but there's not that much more when it comes to Canadian regulations and what way the Canadian government wants to go here. The last thing I'll mention is the Bank of Canada has actually already announced that it is studying the potential use of a CBDC in Canada. For me, you know, just looking at this is it was more of a when, not if things like this are going to come out. When are global or sorry not global, when are large governments going to come out and start actually regulating it? Because I mean it's gonna happen, right? And there's gonna be more. This is just the beginning in terms of what the governments are gonna do. Some of them might see it as a threat to a lot of what they do. However, they also see a lot of threat in terms of illicit uses of cryptocurrency. I mean, that's let's not kid ourselves. So I, I think that they're trying to get ahead of that. It still seems very confusing to me. Like, does this, I'm no expert, you know way more than me. Does this clear up a lot of questions or does this introduce more questions? This is essentially just the US government saying that they're, Telling the various U.S. agencies, I'm thinking here about the Office of the Controller of the Currency, for example, the SEC. There's a few other agencies. They're just essentially telling them, look, this is the direction we want to take. Now work together and figure this out. That's really what they're saying right now. There's nothing more that's coming out of this, at least my understanding. It's really setting the stage to what regulation could potentially be coming down the line just because they were not surprise surprise government agencies not talking to each other a lot of red tape they're essentially directing them now suck it up and work together yeah got it okay yeah because there's there's lots of different organizations that need to play ball here together yeah, exactly. And a lot of people were just looking at the tone and the direction given by this executive order. And that's why it's seen widely as a positive thing, because overall, there was a lot of positive things in this executive orders. There were some negative things that they're asking them to look after. But overall, uh, a lot of people thought 
it's looking good from just the way they're viewing cryptocurrencies as a space. All right, let's get into some more company news. My beloved Constellation Software, ticker CSU on the TSX, announced that it has bought a carve-out of Allscripts Healthcare Solutions, which is publicly listed as MDRX. So they're a large business. However, the Constellation Software is having a carve-out purchase, acquiring the net assets of their physician practice business segment for hospitals and large practices. Whatever that means, it's a $700 million in cash purchase. This is gigantic because the $700 million purchase price is way bigger than anything they have ever done. This is uh, Constellation 2.0. I've been hinting at it. And uh, it's playing out right in front of our eyes. So this document management business for this hospital's tech play, aka all scripts, CSU literally just took that carve out and the business is, they're literally paying less than one times times sales to buy it, which is wonderful for a high, high margin software business. It, is like organically declining a little bit in terms of sales, but they're okay to take on some of these deals. The reason that I find this so important is when Mark Leonard, the founder and CEO of Constellation Software, when he says he's going to do something, he does it. He says they're going to step up organic growth. They do it. They achieve really nice 2021 of a positive organic growth. He says they're going to experiment with learnings from Topicus, which is their fastest organic growth operating business that they spun out. They set up a $200 million VC fund led by the guys who run Topicus. Mark says they're going to do even more M&A at an accelerated pace. What do they do? They deploy record amount of capital in 2021, deploying three times what they previously did. He says they're going to start looking at bigger deals in the next era of their company and they complete this $700 million carve-out. The next day, after they do this carve-out, they bought a niche vertical market software business with literally five employees. The contrast is hilarious. This is their bread and butter, buying these tiny companies, right? But it just shows that they're willing to have versatility in these acquisitions and proves that they're willing to keep pushing it and reward shareholders and look for that next lever of growth. While they continue to buy small companies, they're able to, to do these big deals as well. Yeah, are they, are they still paying that tiny dividend? Dude, I'm just waiting <laughs> for Mark to come out and slash it. He's been hinting at that, so here we'll probably be talking about slashing it at some point. He stopped the special div. He's been hinting at a couple times on his on his president letter and I think on a couple calls that one of his operating group CEOs keeps like being in his ear like, dude, cut the dividend, dude, cut the dividend. He said to Mark's face, apparently, this is what Mark said, he said that this guy has been calling him flat out irresponsible for paying the dividend. Wouldn't it make more sense to actually cut the regular dividend but be open to a special dividend every now and then. That's what I would think. Yeah, because personally. the special dividend doesn't tie you to anything. If you have the funds and the capital to do it without impacting the business, 
then you do it. You might not do it for five years. That's fine. People don't expect it because it's a special dividend. Uh, to me, that would make a lot more sense. I think that that's a probably good way to go about it. Now, they've already said, okay, well, screw the special dividend. We'll keep the regular dividend. But you're right. I think it's probably the other way around maybe is the right way to go because when you have such Hall of Fame level return on invested capital numbers, literally put Mark up in the Hall of Fame first ballot of M&A. And when you have such a good track record, just cut the freaking dividend. I think the, the two companies that I've talked about so far, cut them. WSP, the same div- they've been paying the same dividend since like 2013. It's a grow by acquisition play. Mark's not raising the regular dividend of Constellation. It is a better thing for shareholders if you are able to do M&A at this ridiculously good pace with really good returns. I wouldn't be surprised at all if they, if they cut it because the shareholder base ain't buying it for the dividend. I can tell you with complete confidence that I've that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Now moving on to the news that Lululemon is launching a footwear collection. Before I get to that, you remember when we did the news and about Nike launching a lawsuit about patent infringement against Lululemon for technology they developed in the 1980s? I think it was over their mirror acquisition. I recall, yes. Yes, yes. And we found that pretty funny. But at the time... I did mention that it was starting to feel like Nike was really taking notice about Lululemon becoming a significant competitor for them. And I think the news of Lululemon launching the footwear collection, which will be on March 22nd, 2022, they're starting off with women's footwear, which I think is actually very smart for Lululemon because traditionally they've all, they've actually started as a women clothing line or at leisure. And then eventually they expanding into the men's market. But that to me, is a perfect indicator here because Nike is dominant when it comes to athletic footwear. From the stats I saw, overall the figures show that in the US, there's above 50% of the athletic footwear that's actually owned by Nike or some of their subsidiaries. And that's really massive. And of course, if Lululemon is starting to have their own line, it's going to probably eat into the market share of Nike if they do this right. I don't think they'll become, obviously, I don't think they will become as big as Nike is in that market. But even if they eat a 5% of their market share or something like that, it's something that Nike, I'm sure, will take notice. And Lululemon has had partnerships in the past with footwear companies they ended that a few years ago so i'm sure they have used that expertise to create their own brand and the men's line will be launching in 2023 so i really like the way they're doing it women's first and then men's after that they've always come out and found product market fit for women's clothing first and so i have no it doesn't surprise me at all neither both line items here don't surprise me at all And the second one being that they're launching footwear. It's time. I mean, it's time to continue to offer more and more products to their obsessed customers. Like literally product obsessed customers are ready for whatever they throw at them. So launch new things. And this is what they're doing. What are the margins on 
footwear are they do you think i don't mean i don't know at all are they better than clothes probably not right for lululemon i'm sure they'll be high <laughs> well they'll be they'll be yeah. high yeah. they'll be high but i just i don't know that's something i don't know i'm not sure the exact margins that's a good question something i can research a bit more but i'll definitely have some product research to uh, give our audience i'm sure a couple months down the line because my wife yeah. has already said that she'll buy a pair as soon as they're available. Just for research purposes, of course. Just exactly, for research purposes. But (laughs) it'll be interesting. I think it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And it's going to be, if they do this well and the market receives this well, and the market I'm saying, like, not the stock market, but the actual, you know, women's athleisure uh, or women athletic footwear market, it could be a really good growth lever for Lululemon for years to come, along with the men's clothing lines, as well as their international expansion. Nike's just shaking in their boots right now, eh? Well, they're, I just, mean- shaking. they're <laughs> just shaking in their Nike shoes, for lack of a better uh, pun here. Yeah. I mean, Lululemon has done as executed like very well in the past. I mean, we all know for there were some issues with uh, some of their athleisure being like transparent, translucent for a while. I think there's also some questions around the mirror acquisition, whether it's good or bad. We'll have to see down the line. But overall, I mean, they have done things quite well and they've had a pretty good track record. So my money's on Lululemon here. Obviously, I could be wrong, but they, they have a good track record overall. Let's talk about CrowdStrike, the leader in cybersecurity SaaS. They reported their fourth quarter, full revenue of $1.4 billion for the year, an increase of 66%. They had $441 million of free cash flow, which was up 51% year over year. Over 16,000 subscription customers as of January 31st, which was up 65%. Now, that AR run rate, is 1.73 billion, which is up 65%. This is the number that SaaS companies care about a lot. In addition to some of the most important SaaS metrics, which are 98% gross retention. So they're they're keeping on 98% of customers year over year, so very low churn. And 124% net retention. So if you include upgrades year over year and churn, you find out net retention. This is that holy grail of SaaS business metrics because you're increasing customer spend from your existing customers. You see top line revenue growth at incremental margins that are superior to any business model probably ever. And so that's the beauty of SaaS. And they they have that 120% net retention mark that they, they want to always surpass and they came in above that at 124%. Yeah, no, it sounds like it was a, a good quarter for CrowdStrike. And I mean, they like pretty much every other growth stock, their their stock is down quite a bit in this past six months. So anyone interested in that business, I think it's worth keeping an eye on. The thing that is coming up more and more is lately, of course, is the fact that all high multiple SaaS is getting destroyed. So that across the board is what you just mentioned. As well as there have been some really good formidable competitors like Sentinel One is now public. That's a good formidable competitor to this kind of like AI driven insights on cyber attacks. 
They have these really nice network effects. And so there, there are some really good formidable competitors. They do have that first mover advantage in terms of AI and network effects with CrowdStrike. I just don't see in a world where like, if you were to take a cybersecurity ETF that you don't do really well, even if valuation multiples right now, even after this like 30% drawdown, even if they are stretched, I mean, on a long view, how is cyber not security not going to be an incredibly important industry in the future? That's something I would bet with like complete conviction on is that a basket of these you'll probably do pretty well long term. CrowdStrike's a really, really well run company. Their tech is is incredible. The question continues to remain is at what price? And I think that at finally the tide has come in, at least a little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, the age old question, valuation, which is it's all it's the hardest thing to figure it out, right? It's the the hardest thing investing, whether valuation makes sense or not, when you take into growth. I guess there is whatever the, the valuation is, I think you can oftentimes make an argument for both a bear and a bullish case for those companies that are growing really fast at high valuations. It's the most subjective art form in the, the business of investing money. The thing that comes down to is if you invest in great companies, like high quality, durable, can grow for a long time. If you have a longer horizon, some valuation mistakes kind of come out in a wash. doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It just means that if you have a long horizon and you're buying great, great companies, your mistakes will matter less and less in terms of valuation. And that's why I'm so confident long-term to just own great businesses. I'm not going to sleep poorly at night if I overpaid on $1 cost average. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, well put. Now moving on to US CPI figures that continue to hit highs not seen since 19, the 1980s. So the data came out, US CPI, so inflation, the official inflation metric for those of you who are not uh, fully aware of what CPI is rose to 7.9% year-over-year in February. That's following an increase of 7.5% in January, 7% in December, 6.8% in November. So it's definitely not slowing down, that's uh, for sure. The interesting thing, too, about is this data is it included a couple of days of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Probably does not mean much, obviously just a couple of days of the uh, the whole month, but I think March will be extremely interesting to keep an eye on to see what impacts the Russian-Ukrainian conflict is starting to have on inflation in the U.S., but also Canada. Food and energy were the two main culprits here in terms of uh, rising costs. Food rose 7.9% and energy 25.6%. Used cars actually rose a whopping 41% year over year. And I knew used car prices were up quite a bit, but 41%, I don't know. This is, it's pretty crazy when you think about it. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And I wonder the impact actually of higher gas prices if that's going to put a damper on those used car prices because let's be honest most used cars are gasoline cars sometimes they may not be as efficient as newer cars if we're thinking here about cars that were produced five six seven eight nine ten years ago 
So I do wonder if those rising gas prices will have an impact on the price of used cars. Do you think it will down the line? I think it could, but at this point, it's just so supply constrained that I don't think even any other outside force matters because there's just no supply of new. And so use just like skyrocketed, as you said, 41% on the data. So that's the number that like legit, I would think just going through the process in December myself is like the used car is just ridiculous, man. Like you, <laughs> like dude, dealers were calling me to pay like way, way over what I think my car's worth. Like dealers. Yeah. And, and here's the thing. If a dealer is calling you, that means that there's more margin in it for them. They can sell it for even more. <laughs> oh man, it's it's crazy. But to answer your question, I mean, sure, maybe people see see the price at the pumps and they think, you know, screw it, I'm taking the subway, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. And just to add to that, so new vehicle prices rose 12.4%. So, I mean, prices mm. are pretty much increasing across the board here. Obviously, there is some aspects that are impacting people more on their daily lives of course uh you know food prices will impact everyone and i so i know also housing was up pretty significantly in the u.s so it'll be interesting to keep an eye on and uh, usually the canadian data comes out a week or two after the u.s data so we'll see if the same trend continues in canada as well elon musk the richest man in the world if you go on his twitter uh, don't look now if you go on his twitter this man has just two modes, all right? He has posting aggressive memes and right now some like pretty insensitive memes or talking about the engineering of sending rocket ships to Mars and like super serious. There's no middle ground for this man. On a serious, somewhat serious note, he did tweet yesterday that Tesla and SpaceX are seeing significant recent inflation pressure in raw materials and logistics. So just kind of reiterating the fact, and then he's like kind of tweeting out and polling out like, of course, memes, because that's what he does. And what does he think about inflation? And he thinks it's way higher than whatever the feds are reporting. That's kind of what you and I think as well. Anyways, it's just interesting that what what simulation do we live in that the richest man and CEO of Tesla is tweeting highly insensitive memes and direct cost pressures about his public company like it's just so bizarre isn't it elon musk is bizarre if, it's, uh, <laughs> if there's oh one man. thing he is if anyone could get sued from tweets that it would be him like the amount of people like uh, especially I always remember the whole dogecoin thing yeah, the, like the amount of people responding to them saying that they invested in well, invested in air quotes. I'll, I'll use that yeah, in Dogecoin in. in gambled, but you know, just because Elon Musk said that it was worth doing, it's pretty sad. Sometimes you just see the amount of reply replies and uh, just some sad stories tied to that. So I just I think he he's the meme king or whatever you want to call him on Twitter. Yeah. But I think sometimes he forgets that a lot of people listen to what he has to say and his tweets can impact people in a really negative way. Yeah. I mean, he, he always, his famous quote is like, who controls the memes control the universe. Yeah. He, he keeps it, keeps it entertaining. 
I'll give him that. Now, moving on to some earnings. So Canadian banks are finishing 2021, well, finished 2021 with a very strong year. So Canadian banks have pulled back a bit since their recent highs, but they continue to post strong results. And I'll be going over some results from Q1 here for a few of the larger Canadian banks. But they will be very fascinating to keep an eye on this year. The main reason for that is they should benefit from rising interest rates. We've already seen the Bank of Canada raise the rates by 25 basis points this year, and they are signaling that there will be several more hikes to come as well. And that should help them because it should widen their net interest margins over time. At least in theory, it's a, it should widen that, and typically it has in rising rates environment. So it should be a tailwind for Canadian banks. So don't be surprised if you see record profits again this year and potentially next year for Canadian banks. Like I said, the people who have been buying the the boring stuff in Canada have done exceptionally well. The Canadian banks are are on a tear. I mean, what are they are they still at all-time highs? Let me see. No, they're down a bit. Yeah, that's what I mentioned. Down about like 10%, I would oh, say okay. from all-time highs, yeah. I was going to say I was listening to your segment, but I was I was perusing Elon Musk Twitter. If you really must know, <laughs> that's okay. You're forgiven. Yeah, I'm forgiven. I mean, it's like it's like watching a car crash on his uh, on his page, man. Oh, he's tweeting in Russian, I think, right now, right? Oh, is he? Saw, oh, goodness. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> so now I'll move on to just like I said, some quick earnings from the from Royal Bank after that TD and then Bank of Nova Scotia. I'm not going to do all the banks, but I think you'll get a pretty good idea of how they're doing just based on those threes. So Royal Bank Q1 2022 net income was up 6% to 4.1 billion. EPS was up 7% to 284 a share. Return on equity, a very important metric when it comes to banks, was down 130 basis points, but up 40 basis points when compared to Q4 of last year. And obviously, unless I'm specifying this, I'm looking at year-over-year increases. The profits broken down by segments was actually pretty interesting. So personal and commercial banking was up 10% to just shy of $2 billion. This is their largest segment. It represents close to 50% of their profits. Wealth management was up 24% to $795 million. Capital markets net income decreased 3% to $1.03 billion. Insurance as well as their investor and treasury services were both slightly down from a year ago. These are by far their two smallest segments. CET1 ratio remained high to 13.5%, although it was down 20 basis points compared to last year. And then RBC is up more than 25% over the past year, which has actually outpaced the S&P TSX and the S&P 500. On top of that, you know, it pays a nice juicy dividend of 3.5%, probably even more so for some of our listeners that I'm sure are owning this stock here because they've owned it for years. So their yield on cost is most likely way higher than that. But good for you if you own RBC because it, it was a very good quarter. And like I said earlier, it was a really good 2021 year as well. We should figure out who has the highest yield on cost on Royal Bank in Canada. We need to like go out and find who this person is because there is someone out there who has a disgusting yield on cost on Royal Bank. Like a absolutely 
ridiculous, bought it in the 70s, blacked out for 50 years. Oh, still holding shares. Like these people exist everywhere. And congratulations, honestly. For Royal Bank, I mean, that commercial personal banking and that wealth management business. Oh man, the wealth management business still growing really well. You know, the the regular banking segment still growing, you know, high single digits. I think you said 10%. Just prince cash. Just absolutely prince cash. Not much to dislike here, really. No, no, exactly. Now move it on to the next one, TD Bank. Again, Q1 2022. They reported net income of $3.7 billion, which was up 14% year over year. EPS of $2.02, which was also up 14%. CT1 ratio was up 162 basis point to 15.2%. Return on equity up 100 basis point to 15.3%. Canadian retail earnings were up 11% to $2.3 billion, which still represents the bulk of TD's business, even with them having a strong U.S. presence. U.S. retail earnings, on their hand, were up 30% to a billion-dollar USD. And just like Royal Bank, TD has done very well this year. It's up more than 20%, which, again, has outpaced both the S&P TSX and the S&P 500. TD's dividend currently yields 3.70%. And when I say the past year, I, I am saying, like, the past 365 days, not... Uh, you know, not this year, like the the first couple of months. So just in case right. people are, are wondering, and their dividend yields 3.70% right now. The thesis for TD Bank for a while, at least from my eyes, has been that US retail play. So it's really nice to see that play out. You saw earnings were up 30%, doing a billion in, in net income for that segment. That's, I mean, that's good, right? That's the thesis in my mind playing out. So congrats to TD shareholders. Yeah, yeah, definitely a good quarter for TD. Now moving on to Bank of Nova Scotia, Q1 2022. Again, it's similar numbers here. So net income was also up 14% to $2.74 billion. EPS was up 15% to $2.14 per share. Return on equity up 160 basis point to 15.8%. CT1 ratio was 12%, which was down 30 basis points. And their CT1 ratio for Canadian banks, uh, at least these three banks are very high, especially compared to some of their US counterparts. It just means that the banks are over, overall well capitalized. That's just kind of an easy way to for people to wrap their heads around it without going into the, the whole way that this ratio is calculated because it can get pretty complex. Now, Canadian bank earnings for BNS was up 31% to $1.2 billion. International banking earnings were up 40% to $545 million. Again, there's some currency fluctuations here. And we've mentioned it before. Bank of Nova Scotia has a very big presence in Central and South America. So that's where most of the international banking earning comes from. Their global wealth management was down 1% to $412 million, and global bank and markets segment increased 3% to $561 million. For international banking, a lot of these Canadian players have a real opportunity to establish a huge footprint in underbanked places. And so 
I think that it's smart that they're doing that. For one, I do think that it's smart. My other thought here is strong return on equity across the board. That's like the most important metric for banks. And the CT1 capital ratio, what is it, 15% for TD? That's insane. Those ballooned over COVID when the feds would not let them buy back stock or increase their dividend. So those all hit all-time highs sitting on extremely well-capitalized balance sheets. And so I think over time, you know, they're banks and shareholders will eventually be getting a good amount of that. Yeah, you actually, it's interesting you said that because they were also mentioning the reason why, for example, RBC, their CT1 ratio remained high but was slightly down is for the exact reason that you mentioned because they were either buying back shares or increasing their dividends. Yeah, like that capital, like once it gets over a certain threshold on that ratio, like it basically just all goes to shareholders via buybacks or dividends. So, I mean, when that's high, I mean, it's probably a pretty good thing, right? Like it correlates really well with the share performance, I bet. Okay, last one on the slate here is sports betting and sports betting in this country to be particular. Now, if you've been watching sports lately, you've been sitting down, you're watching a game, you've noticed that there are lots of ad dollars coming in. Actually, not even just when you're watching a sport, just across the board, ad dollars for sports betting is very noticeable. And now the players are signing contracts, which is very new. Austin Matthews landed a three-year deal with Bet99, becoming the first active player to sign with a betting company. I saw that Connor McDavid, McJesus, just signed some big deal as well with BetMGM, if I recall the name correctly. And as a backstory, in August of 2021, so just for those who are not familiar with the story here, Canadian lawmakers amended the nation's criminal code to allow for single-game betting via C218. It was already happening before, but now it's actually legal. I think this is a smart move because it helps bring on some of that activity that was already happening from before. You know, this offshore sports book was already happening. So it's good to bring it here domestically. I think of it a lot like cannabis legalization, right? Like it was already widely used, somewhat decriminalized depending on where you are. Even if it wasn't technically legal, like if you wanted to smoke some weed, you could. If you wanted to bet on the game, you could. It makes complete sense to legalize it, regulate it, create jobs, bring in some GDP growth, and you guessed it, tax it. So it makes sense all around it and similar sentiment here with sports betting. I mean, if you wanted to get on games, it was... Trust me, and when I say it didn't stop any of my buddies from getting in on betting on the games. So just to give you an idea of some books that are coming to Canada, or at least have plans to come to Canada, The Score, which got, you, you know The Score, do you remember when The Score was, I don't for me it was like Channel 36, you could watch highlights there, it was like a TSN competitor. Do you remember yeah. watching the score? Yeah. Yeah. I okay. mean, I, I remember watching it at my friend's place because I didn't have it on my, my cable. <laughs> oh, you didn't get it. Okay. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a competitor to uh, like TSN or whatever in terms of highlights, like Sports Center. And so they, they have a big app 
lot of a lot of apps so they were able to kind of utilize that and get in front of the, the betting market because they have so many active users on people on their app for looking at what the scores are in the games and so Penn National Gaming acquired them in 2021 for a huge premium to their public stock because the score was was a public listing before that points bet some Australian company bet MGM who I just mentioned I think Wayne Gretzky it says here Wayne Gretzky McDavid a part of it FanDuel, FanDuel and DraftKings, of course, being the giant uh, DFS businesses. Uh, that's daily fantasy sports. Caesars, you know, we everyone knows Caesars and Bet Rivers. I'm not familiar with Bet Rivers, but these are apparently big books that are all looking to are already in Canada or looking to do it legally here in Canada now as well. So. I expect it to become an even bigger business than it already is. And sports betting is here to stay. Yeah, yeah, it's here to stay. I think it goes back to when I did the earnings with DraftKings. I'll be interesting to see whether it actually becomes really profitable or it's still land grab and company spending. Their their Mm. customer acquisition costs is extremely high right now. And it'll be interesting to see whether they can retain those customers and reduce those acquisition costs over time and become more profitable. I think a lot of the market is actually becoming pretty impatient with some of these companies, including DraftKings. We saw their stock price tank after their last earnings because their costs were increasing, especially marketing and customer acquisition, and was impacting their potential profitability. And investors were having trouble seeing that holy path to profitability. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The alleged path. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So I think that'll be the most interesting to keep an eye on. You know, it's a growing market because it's transitioning from, let's say, a gray area to a, a fully legal market. But again, it doesn't mean that it will be a great business right off the bat. And I think it's just a, a good reminder for people, potentially, if you want to just learn some lessons from the cannabis legalization, that might be a, a good place to uh, draw some lessons from. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of my take on here. It's something I'll keep an eye on, but something I'm not interested in investing anytime soon. DraftKings is down 75% since September. Oh, that's wow. a tough pill yeah. to swallow. I knew it was bad, but uh, continued after we did that earnings show for sure. Yeah, because it was Holy like in the twenties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's down almost eighty percent from the actual high. But September tenth, it peaked there as well, seventy five percent down. This is just goes what the show. I mean, it can be a growing company. It can be in a growing secular trend. But uh, if you pay stupid prices for, it, I think this thing was trading at like. 60 70 billion in market cap like it had no competition or something i mean oof maybe it's cheap here though who knows i think a lot of stuff that has gotten beat up is cheap here now though yeah and for me that was also always my first thing when thinking about gambling plays like this is just i know some people that like to bet on sports obviously i've played poker in the past like i'm familiar with people's behavior in general when it comes to that And what I've noticed is the loyalty is not there for everyone. Some people will be very loyal to some sites, but some people will just follow whichever one gives them the best bang for their buck. Yeah, and And is having a good promotion. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. 
Yeah, like the user acquisition is an interesting strategy. Like what they'll do, I'll give you an example. Don't quote me on like the exact line over under on it, but what it was was DraftKings was doing something. It's like you can bet on Debo Samuel, who's a wide receiver for uh, the 49ers, like when they're in the, the they're in the uh, championship game. And it was like for him to hit over under 20 yards and they feed force feed him the ball on the ground for like 10 to 15 carries a game let alone like eight passes his real over under on the line should be like 85 yards not 20 but they're promoting this like here come smash the over on Debo to hit 20 yards they know they're gonna lose money on that promotion he's gonna get his 100 yards 140 yards scrimmage yards because he's an absolute beast that's like their cost of acquisition. So people are like, oh, this is the easiest bet I'll ever make. I should download DraftKings, bet on this. You know how that comes out in their financial statements? Is SGNA cost of marketing because they know that they're going to lose money on that line. And that is by design, right? It's an expensive way to acquire users, though. Holy crap. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's nothing new. It'll continue probably for the foreseeable future. I think it'll probably continue until we start seeing some consolidation in the space. That's my prediction here. I don't know when it will happen. Might be five years, ten years down the line. But I just feel it just feels like it'll be a bit like the the online poker space. You'll see consolidation in the space. You'll see two or three big players that will have most of the market share. Yep, consolidation's probably coming around. But uh, in the meantime, it's a good market. If you bought DraftKings at the high, I'm sorry. I apologize for uh, roasting this performance. That does it for today's episode. Today was March 14th, 2022. Please go ahead and share the show with a friend. Like seriously, you have no idea how much it helps us grow the show. Get it into more people's ears. I was going to say hands, but... You know, get get into more people's ears. More people need to be listening to the show because we're here to tell it how it is and spread uh, news and what, the way we think about investing. This is a big growing market, Simon. The DIY investors, two hundred and thirty four million brokerage accounts open in the U.S. right now. Yeah, I didn't need to know that. I just needed to watch the Super Bowl ads to know. Yeah, just the Super Bowl <laughs> ads. You'll know. Invest in the podcast and share it with a friend. How about that? Thanks so much for listening. And stratosphereinvesting.com, it is the business I built for you. And I really mean that because it gives you analytics to do your own self-directed research, 10-year financial statements, historical visualizations, walk you through very high-quality research. And it's completely free to use and comes with a 14-day free trial on the premium membership. That is stratosphereinvesting.com. If you cannot remember that URL, type in get stock market, G-E-T, getstockmarket.com. And we'll see you over there. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.